0: Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. As part of my research into grief, I've come to know grief can be isolating and community is essential to explore, survive, and heal with grief. I co-facilitate the Pause, Breathe, Restore retreats along with wellness coach Erin Vanderkoor. We help people engage and move forward with grief in a safe, supportive, and healing community. Our next grief retreat will be held at the Oregon Coast, November 8th through 11th. Information about this retreat can be found at pausebreatherestore.com and in our show notes. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness explores our relationship with grief, the gratitude for our humanity, and the greatness we attain when we tell our stories. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. Having experienced the pregnancy, birth, and loss of a medically fragile infant, Heather Campbell went on to pursue a career in nursing. I speak to Heather about juggling parenting a young child alongside all the responsibilities and outcomes of caring for a baby with CHARGE syndrome.
1: I think most people just think you just get pregnant and have a baby, Mm. and they don't think about all the other, at least I didn't.
0: Getting pregnant is such this hopeful, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, all the symbolism around fertility right. is just so hopeful and positive. And Although some of us are really nervous about what ifs. The unknown was just so scary yeah. of what is
1: happening because I felt like every time I would have an ultrasound or see the perinatologist, which is a high-risk obstetrician, there was something new that they were telling me mm-hmm. that was wrong. It wasn't just limited to a cleft lip. He now has a heart defect, Mm. and we're not sure he's going to survive. It was surreal. It was just insane. I started having panic attacks on top of being on bed rest with a (sighs) two-year-old that watches Peter Pan and The Land Before Time incessantly.
0: And a two-year-old is a busy person. Yes. And just with the sadness, like how did you balance all of that?
1: It was hard, but I also had my family, my aunt would come over and take me shopping or come over and just hang out with me. My mom spent a lot of time with me just doing what I could, but knowing that it was ultimately, it could end up, you're going to deliver this baby that will not survive.
0: Did you end up having a natural birth? The doctor who I had been seeing
1: my whole pregnancy, the hospital that I was at, did not have the NICU that I needed. So unfortunately, I had to go up to a different hospital, which unfortunately was also a teaching hospital. It was with physicians and residents that I didn't have any idea who they were. It was a scheduled induction because everything needed to be In order, they needed to have all their ducks in the row when this kid was born. I remember the day was just long. All of my family was there. I remember a a woman a couple of rooms down screaming in labor. Uh. And I'm like, can't you give that woman an epidural? And the nurse looked at me and just through her teeth said, she's had one. And I was like, let me up. I'm going to go down there and I'm going to tell her, you know what, (laughs) get a grip. She was just screaming. And I am all about teaching. I do it every single day. In our office, we have students rotate in and out. And I love that aspect. But in that place and time for me, that isn't what I needed. Yeah. Not only did we have a NICU. We also had neonatologists and we had cardiac ready and everybody, including residents, everybody. So I remember at one time there was like eight people in my room. Wow. It was just unreal.
0: I would imagine there was some sense of reassurance by having all these professionals in the room ready for what was about to happen. How do you balance that reassurance with just these intense gaggle of witnesses to this intimate moment.
1: I had such a great nurse, truly. She actually wasn't initially my nurse, but they asked her to come and talk to me about my son being born with a cleft lip because she had had, as I recall, it was one or two children Mm. born with a cleft lip. She... Was real with me. She was like, you know, this is what he's going to look like. You have this dream. You're having this beautiful baby, and that's everybody's expectation. She truly set me up with a great expectation.
0: And I imagine you can't breastfeed when you have a cleft lip. Like, nope, yeah, Mm -mm.
1: it was pumping. Mm. Yeah, I had a fabulous nurse. Just. Such a fabulous nurse. And my doctor, who had taken care of me for my whole pregnancy, actually came up there. Oh, good. And was with me, but he didn't have privileges, so he couldn't. Different hospital. Yeah.
0: But you did have a natural birth.
1: Let's define natural.
0: <laughs> I had a vaginal birth. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. With an epidural. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Did. You get to have skin contact with him afterwards, or no. he just got whisked away? I
1: got to see him momentarily, but he was taken. Yeah. yeah. They took him across the way to Primary Children's Hospital, which is the hospital connected to the hospital that I was at, and immediately took him to the NICU to assess him. I remember the doctors coming back and saying, that his pulmonary arteries were better than what they expected and we would just kind of have to wait and see. But he was already hooked up to, you know, all sorts of machines and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. I think I got to see him the next day. They wheeled me over and I saw him the next day. It was interesting. I remember going into the NICU and There was all of these tiny little babies. And then there is my kid that's seven pounds, four ounces. He looked like a giant
0: in there. Next to the preemies? Yes, yes. He was huge. And were you full term?
1: I was term, yeah. I delivered on my mom's birthday. Yeah. I spent every single day up there. I was lucky enough to live within 10 miles of the hospital. Whereas when I was meeting families in the NICU, there was one family from Idaho Falls oh. that they had flighted their baby. And I met people from all over that had just packed up their lives and were living. On hold. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or one parent was here and the other parent was home. Mm. So that was just in itself incredible, learning everybody else's stories about why their kid is there.
0: Did you find that to be like reassuring in some way or or did you have this feeling like of community, that you weren't alone?
1: Definitely. I felt like we did make friends with this one couple that their kiddo had a heart issue as well. And they were the ones from Idaho Falls and he would come down on the weekends and she would just stay there. But the most amazing part was, you know, listening to each of our stories and At the end of the day, being so grateful for what we had. We had good health insurance. This family had no insurance. Oh, my God. I mean, and this was back in the 90s, and things were different. But still, I remember getting my first hospital bill in a Manila envelope, and it was like 60 pages. Whoa! And I remember thinking, why are they sending me his medical records? And it wasn't. It was— bills. It was a detailed bill for $120,000. I still have all of that stuff. Back then, I was not a nurse. Now I look at it and I can't even fathom what that would be like because I just remember looking at it then going, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with this? And just laughing because it was just such an astronomical amount.
0: It might as well be 100,000 or 100 million. Like, right. How am I
1: do- oh, what kind of payment arrangements can we set up for this? You know, yeah.
0: can I send you monopoly money? Truly, <laughs> truly. <laughs>
1: or I can grab some from the cash register my son has with those big coins. <laughs> right. But I just remember from the insurance company getting explanation of benefits. I would get three and four of them a day.
0: Right. I mean, yeah. I've had medical stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And you think, like, how can a human yeah. maintain a full-time job and manage this stuff?
1: Honestly, I learned, I learned so many things. When he had his heart surgery, I got a bill from an anesthesiologist who was out of network. Yeah. I'm like, how do you have an out-of-network doctor for a surgery? And I remember thinking, how can I prevent this from happening? Well, you can't because you don't get to choose your anesthesiologist. I learned how to take care of him. Every morning I would get up, I would get ready to go. My sister-in-law at the time was 14 years old, and bless her heart, she spent her summer babysitting my two-and-a-half-year-old at the time so I could go up to the hospital every single day. My mom would meet me up at the hospital, and we would spend— the day there, I would get up in the morning and I would go up there, open his chart, read what the doctors had said, ask any questions, and I learned how to take care of him. It also changed me as a person. I used to be passive. But after you go through an experience like this, you have to become more say aggressive, but you almost have to be hardened and aggressive because I was my child's advocate. You had to be assertive. Yeah. And if I didn't like somebody the way they were taking care of him, or if they didn't allow me to be part of the care that I felt, then I would go above them to the charge nurse and I would say, hey, I have a problem with this.
0: We're curious to hear from our listeners. Do you have thoughts or reactions to something you heard in this episode? Or maybe you have an idea for grief, gratitude, and greatness and would like to share some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Links to contact us can be found in all the usual places. Or check the show notes.
1: He spent six weeks in the hospital. We brought him home. We had home health nurses for 16 hours a day. My ex-husband would work during the day and I would help take care plus also sleep because I went back to work at night because we needed the income. I hadn't been working. So we would have home health until about, I wanted to say 8 or 9 a.m. And I would get home at like 2. So I would have that amount of sleep and then have to take care of My toddler and Jordan. That was tough, but
0: it just worked. That's amazing. You guys were able to get the in-home health nurses. We had fabulous insurance. You don't hear that very much anymore. Right?
1: No, not at all. (laughs) That in itself just made such a huge difference, especially when he came home and he needed oxygen. He had monitors. He had a trach that Mm -hmm. I had to learn how to change and suction. He had a feeding tube that I needed to learn how to place because that's how he was fed is through a, it was, it's called an NG tube. And I had to learn how to do
0: all of that. Wow. So he could come home. In that six weeks that he was in the NICU, Mm -hmm. that's when he had his surgery is in that time, his heart surgery. There's an overarching name for... Charge. Yeah. Charge syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. When you were able to bring him home, I mean, <laughs> nothing about this seems easy, but I imagine just not having to go to the hospital every day. There must have been right. some sense of relief. But then you're back to work and you're just on this kind of habit trail of sorts, it sounds right, like. Right. And just work and baby and toddler and care. And yeah. How did you survive that? I don't know. Yeah. Honestly. It's not how
1: I just did. There wasn't a choice. Yeah. You do anything for your children.
0: So how long was Jordan stable at home? We had one
1: stint after he came home for a couple days in the hospital. My grandfather was sick. And so I was making plans to go to see my grandfather, which was about four hours away from where we lived. And I was setting up the home health nurses. I was leaving my has been home with him and the home health nurses. I had everything set up that day. The home health nurse had kind of stuck around for a little bit and we were gabbing. We had become friends. I mean, she lived at our house for 16 hours a day. Also, I had become friends with one of the NICU nurses up from the hospital. So the home health nurse was there just getting ready to go. My Friend Julie, who was one of the NICU nurses, stopped by to say hi and to see him. And everything, time stopped right there. Julie walked in to say hi to him. And she said, "No, he looks a little dusk. He always had a blue hue because he had a heart defect. But this time he looked a little different. She started listening to his heart and lungs and she said, dial 911. And again, that was before cell phones, so I couldn't contact my husband. He did have a pager, though. (laughs) So Julie contacted his company, and they paged him, and she took me up to the hospital. We arrived. Jordan was already in the NICU, and he was on life support. At this point, he was four months old. Yeah. I remember walking in and they have him intubated, you know, hooked up to monitors. And the doctors told us that basically he was brain dead, you know, mm. that he had been deprived of oxygen and that we needed to make a decision. Unfortunately, my mother was traveling. One of the hardest things was that he still had kind of reflexes. So when you would touch like his foot, And that would just, just mess with you. It would just, you know, I would be like, are you sure? We had a DNR. I do not resuscitate. Hoping that my mom would get there. We spent two nights at the hospital waiting. We had everybody looking for my mom because she was traveling in a motorhome. So it wasn't like we could call her. I see. We finally got a hold of her. How did you find her? They were going from Utah up to Oregon and coming down the coast and stuff like that. And they stopped at somebody's place and that person knew and told my mom. And so she called and we were able to tell her and then it took her eight hours to get home. So finally on the 12th, we took him off life support. There is not one day that does not go by, that I am not thankful for everything that I learned, everything that he taught me and made me a better person, truly. When I tell people that, they look at me like, you're crazy, you would do that again? And I always say yes in a heartbeat because I wouldn't be who I am or be where I'm at. Had it not been for him and that experience, your whole world changes. Your whole outlook on everything changes. You know, you're only thinking about yourself. But then you find out in your friends, my experience, how it affected them and getting their perspective. One was my cousin. She was scared to tell me that she was pregnant. Yeah. Because I think she felt like I would be upset or... You know, how dare she? But it wasn't like that. I didn't feel that way. But I can see where she was coming from. Friends didn't know how to approach me yeah. or what to say. Saying I'm sorry is obviously appropriate, but you can understand how somebody feels until you have walked in their shoes. I grieved in a different way than my ex husband did. I always had a feeling that Jordan wouldn't live for a long time. And I don't know if it's a mother's intuition, but my ex-husband was completely blindsided. Mm. He did more of the stoic, you know, the next day after we got home, you know, I remember waking up and he's outside mowing the lawn and going about his business. And so, watching, seeing how he grieved versus myself, you know, I wanted to talk to people. And he just, no, he just wanted to keep it to himself.
0: Culturally, I don't think we're encouraged to talk about these things. I mean, I think, look at how we look at miscarriage. Don't even talk about it. Don't tell any, I mean, I've had doctors say, don't tell anyone you're pregnant until after the first trimester. Right, right, right. Don't set yourself up for that, having to right. tell people. Yeah. So we'll just keep it inside. Imagine having a child. And I've heard stories of people who've had children who have not lived to their first birthday. and Yeah. it seems to be, let's just sweep that under the rug. But how can you do that? You can't. You didn't. No,
1: no, <laughs> definitely not. That changed me, changed my life forever.
0: Yeah. You know, we go through this life and those of us who have had traumatic events happen, I remember my dad telling me, I was probably a preteen and I was probably like, gosh, nobody else has all this happened to them. And he said, you know, Sarah, everybody has their pain. We just don't see it. And unfortunately, I think we live in a culture that encourages us to just suck it up And so when we hear these stories, they can be really shocking and surprising, especially when you see people going about their daily lives and being positive and making a difference in the world and doing things and and you think, oh my gosh, that person has been through all of that? Oh my gosh, it can be a real shocker. You have no idea what the person you're being a jerk to has been through. Man, if you only knew, you probably wouldn't be a jerk. I don't know. Right, right? You know, one of my favorite things
1: is when people say, how did you do it? Because it wasn't an option. You just do. Yeah. I mean, I don't recall somebody saying, okay, we have a couple options here. Right. Yeah. You just do. Yeah. I always think about when people say that to me, how did you get through that? How did you do all of that? You're like, duh. (laughs) Right? Because it's something that— You don't have a choice. You just got to do it. This is your child, and you have to take care of him. Yeah. And there's not another option.
0: If you'd like to support our work with grief, gratitude, and greatness, consider becoming a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have a business that supports people who are listening to our show, let's talk about how you can sponsor an episode or two or three.
1: I was working full time for an OBGYN office. I had 3 children. I started taking classes at the community college, finally finished my prerequisites. I think when I started I was 30. Mm, okay, or 31. Then I was accepted to nursing school and I did work full time, 3 children and I did nursing school at night. Dang. Yeah. And I did that for 2 years
0: but you knew you wanted to go into gynecology work. So when I first started in
1: OBGYN, I was initially kind of shy about oh how am I going to have this discussion about sexually transmitted diseases, abnormal pap smears about anything and everything related to a woman. A lot of people especially
0: My parents' age, they didn't talk about that kind of stuff. Kids are, it's so much more open now. So how long have you been working in OBGYN office now? 21 years. Yeah. And it's still really rewarding to you?
1: Absolutely. Whenever we have a patient that has a loss, our physicians come and ask me, hey, will you share your story? And I am always willing to share my story with people because I want them to understand that they're not alone.
0: That's a lot of pressure on you. You work in an office with how many OBGYNs? Five. Five. Yeah. And you're the go-to for whenever. Yeah. I met a
1: gal in 2016. She had a 38-week loss. Mm. She came in for her two-week follow-up, and I went in and chatted with her. Her husband was in the room. So I shared my story. Spoke with her. Then I turned to her husband and said, How are you? Yeah. How are you doing? I remember him looking at me, realizing that I'm asking him because he's at his wife's doctor's office.
0: Nobody's been asking him that, probably. Never, never. Because, you know, as a woman,
1: you're obviously more tied to all of the feelings because of you're carrying this child. But The partner is just as affected. He looked at me and he said, I am doing okay. And then he proceeded to ask me questions and he thanked me for acknowledging that he's had a loss as well. Yeah. Then I met some people who had been in my situation. I was working in the office that they were coming to, and I was able to share my story. And I Loved that because then they knew that they weren't alone and that all of their feelings were validated. Yeah. Yeah. Because your mind is your worst enemy. Right? Yes. And you can spiral very quickly into a bad place, especially when you are pregnant and you're scared. Yeah. Everybody thinks the worst. I'm very careful with what I share with people. Depending on their type of loss, I tell people I've lost a child, but I don't explain to people in great detail what was going on because I don't want to compare my loss to their loss. Right. I want to just sympathize and be empathetic and just sit there with them, you know, because it's not about comparing losses, it's just
0: about sharing that, hey, I understand loss. Right. So
1: So I don't go into great detail, but I usually will just let them know that if they decide to have future babies, I will be there every step of the way to hold their hand, to listen to them if they feel like they're crazy. Because I had that nurse for me to say, I'm scared. And she would just listen. Yeah. Knowing that There's nothing that she can do or I can do to change that, but just having somebody to listen to me say that. I take this very, very personal. I take my job, my patience, what I do, very personal. It's something that I take a lot of pride in to be able to help someone else.
0: Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. If you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or topics you'd like to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. Call or text our show at 503-454-6646 or send us a message via the contact link at griefgratitudegreatness.com. Be sure to let your friends know about us and join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.